from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just fine and dandy. How are you? Michael? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks. Uh, recovering from a week-long business trip. And um, in, uh, actually, I was more towards your neck of the woods. I was in the Midwest. Yeah. And then well, you were out in my neck of the woods. <laughs> exactly. How, how much Cincinnati chili did you get to have? I had two helpings. I okay. went to Gold Star Chili and Skyline Chili. Okay. So that I could um, figure out which I liked best. Which one did you like better? I don't like either one better. I like them both. It I, for me, if I if I'm in the mood for a lot of cinnamon, then it's Skyline Chili mm-hmm. by far because it's it's very flavorful and all that. Gold Star because they don't have as much chili. You could I got the five way. Yeah, you know, yeah, and and and, uh, and I'm sure every teenager is giggling, and uh, and I f- I felt that Skyline with the cinnamon. It um, sort of overpowered some of the other flavors a bit. Gold Star has less cinnamon, and they probably could stand to have a little more in it. But I felt I could taste some of the other flavors. Okay, I'll give, I'll, I will give you a little bit of that. So my uh, my standard order anytime I go. I mean, first off, I don't go to Gold Star. That's the, I, that, I remember yeah. yeah. Off air, we talked about that before I left. Exactly, yeah. but yeah, if I'm if I'm having Skyline, depending on when the next time I'm going to be able to have it, that decides if I get either a regular four way with onions or or the large four way with onions, and then also two or three Coney dogs, depending on how hungry I All am. All at once. Oh, oh I, my gosh! Listen. <laughs> it's it i developed the bad habit because when i was living in cincinnati i th- it was when i was like at my skinniest i mean it's if if we're friends on facebook or anything with anyone listening like you go back and look at my photos around <laughs> 2009 2010 i mean i was rail thin and i literally it was like i, I was working so many jobs that were where it required heavy lifting and constantly on my feet and moving. And so I just ate garbage all the time and didn't gain any weight at all. And uh, unfortunately, I I transferred into my current size with my eating habits from when I was active all the time. And not that I'm not active now, but uh, it's, it's a lot of different when you're serving at a restaurant and running around like that or working at Universal and and constantly emptying garbage cans and walking on a treadmill all day at the Harry Potter attraction and stuff. But yeah, I, I, when I, when I eat uh, skyline, I, I eat like there's no tomorrow. 
<laughs> so so I liked both. So it'll just I, and you know I have a feeling when I've been told I'm going to be traveling back there more much more often um next year and so I'll go to both. I oh. like it. Everyone in California thinks I'm nuts, but I I don't know why I like it. It's good. And uh, but I prefer Skyline Sweet Tea mm. over Gold Stars. Gold Star has a Though at least the gold star I went to has had a funny aftertaste, almost like a metallic taste to it, and Skylines was very good. Yeah, I so. I can't. I've probably had it once or twice. It's not something that I get every single time I go. Usually, I'm like, I, I just need water to mm-hmm. to cleanse the palate between hot dogs and such. But yeah, <laughs> I was impressed though with because uh, I watched the kitchen at Skyline. Wow, they really, what an operation. First of all, it was sparkling clean, um, the one I went to. And what an operation, putting those Coney dogs together. And, um, you know, they have this long metal thing that holds all the dogs in the buns. And this young man then was just filling them one by one by one. And, I mean, wow. I mean, I was impressed in how they were doing the chili. I mean, it was like an assembly line. Yeah. No, and I mean, I haven't been into one that's not clean like that and that's the great thing about Mm -hmm. them is that you literally can watch them cook everything and assemble everything right there in front of you so it's 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 entertaining i i swear if i if i could open up a restaurant like a franchise or restaurant that's that's what i would do i would never want to work there but i would love to own (laughs) one and just go in and watch them and eat eat hot dogs all day and watch my heart get worse the next time you know disney springs has an opening there, there you go. I, that's where I. That's where I get sad every day that whoever had some stake in it that decided to move to Clearwater and open up the stores there. Like, why couldn't they have just chosen Orlando? And then I'd yeah. have them. I'd have them here instead of having to drive an hour and fifty minutes to get them. Yeah. yeah. Well. Anyway. So. So that was fun. And you. It looks like you had a good time at Disneyland from when I, I was been watching all your videos, many of your videos, especially if the Oogie Boogie Bash video. You know what was funny, though, is when you, at that video, <laughs> at the opening of that, when you and Kylie and um, Rhino and I don't know who else was in that video, um, you st- at first I couldn't figure out why you were channeling jo- Joey Lawrence on Blossom. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, wait, that was the beginning of the Oogie Boogie song. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even remember what the opening of the video was. That's one that Rhino put together. Yeah, now you were doing the whoa and all that. Oh it yeah, sounded, yeah. It sounded to me like Joey Lawrence and his, you know, his whoa or whatever he used to do on Blossom. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I just thought it was funny. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, I. You know yeah. what? Maybe I am a little tone deaf. So, <laughs> well, so am I, as you could tell by my trying to do it. And I can't do the Joey Lawrence thing. And I never watched Blossom, but um, Carol and I would watch um, Big Brother, and I think he was on Celebrity Big Brother. I think that's right. And yeah. and and they were trying to get him to do it. So everyone else on the show <laughs> was doing that. Whoa! But he wouldn't. He absolutely refused. That's hilarious. But yeah, no. It, yeah. Disneyland was a great time. So. Uh, you know, it's uh, we were out there during a classic Southern California heat wave where it's in the low 90s and it's like 2% humidity. So everyone says that they're melting and and it's the, the yes, most humid time right. of the year. And it's like, you, you people are insane. But it uh, weather was beautiful and uh, the parks were 
Parks were so-so on crowds. Uh, it got, it, towards the end of our trip, once we got into the weekdays, it was a lot better than it was on the weekend periods. But uh, Halloween Better is, in terms of less crowds or more crowds? Sorry, say that again? Uh, you're saying it was better. Better in terms of, of more guests, less yeah, guests? Yeah, more. once it got Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were a little on the heavy side with guests. Uh, you know, classic Disneyland and slightly theme park, but more or less Disneyland. It's like Saturday and Sunday, you know, it's you could walk on pretty much everything except for like Peter Pan and, and Space Mountain until about 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock right in there. You know, no one for some reason, it's the, the best kept secret of Disneyland is the first three hours. No one bothers to show up. And uh, and then. After that, well, the locals haven't made their way there yeah. yet. Yeah, <laughs> and then of course things got crazy. So it was like that then. But then, like on Monday, you know, it was well into close to one o'clock, and everything was still like five and ten minute waits. So except for like again, Peter Pan, the the big ones that you expect the long waits for. You know, Alice was probably around like a fifteen or twenty minute wait, and. That's not bad. Yeah, no, it it was very easygoing, and Halloween's such a great time of year to be there. Whether it's Haunted Mansion holiday or just the the Pumpkin Festival on Main Street, you know, I, we all wish we could have Big Thunder Ranch back, but that's yeah. that's not happening. But they they still find ways to to just liven liven those parks up during the Halloween season. Mm-hmm. So I, I was they happy. do a nice job. Do, do they celebrate Halloween on Batu? Uh, no, they do not celebrate. Halloween oh, okay. The two. Uh, they don't have anything else like Spirit Day or Life Day <laughs> or what, whatever. And no, not not yet. But that will be interesting to find out what happens when Life Day rolls around this December. To see I know. They... Did you hear? Okay, I don't know if this is a rumor or or of urban legend, but supposedly they want to make another Christmas special. Star Wars Christmas special? I have not heard that. On Disney Plus? See, that's why I'm not sure if this is a real story or not. But it's been making the rounds on the interwebs. I uh, Yeah, I have so. not seen that one, but I wouldn't be surprised if they would do it. Why Why the heck not? So, someone will watch it. <laughs> well, it, it they, can, they have nowhere to go but up. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> or they need someone who will, like, appreciate the first time around and be like, we need to make it... <clears throat> unwatchable but at the same time like not purposely unwatchable yeah so anyway well we'll see but it won't be the same without b arthur it's well singing closing up the bar it won't but maybe they can get betty white to come on and do something so (gasps) it's a good you know get another golden girl so there you go you got you had two good ideas this time cincinnati chili place and disney springs (laughs) and Betty White starring in a Star Wars Christmas 2 bo- electric boogaloo. Yeah, I, so, listen, there you go. It's someone from Disney. Make it happen now. <laughs> That's right. All right. We are, I am delighted to let folks know that, um, that Dave Bossert and Alan Coates' Indiegogo campaign for the book about Claude Coates made its goal. Oh, excellent. So Good. They hit 100%. I think I read that yesterday as of this recording. Yeah. And uh, so now it's all 
you know, gravy, as he put it. Now, whatever more money comes in means they can enhance the book. Yeah. So because that was like the minimum they needed. So now it can be even better. And I think it means after they hit their 100%, the perks go up in price or something. I believe that was it. Yeah. And because yeah. they were so running a means- little bit of a discount on some of the stuff, too. Yeah, so so all of you folks who got in um, before they hit a hundred percent, you know, now everyone that's coming afterwards pays a little more. Yeah. So I, I hate but. that it was so down to the wire with it, but that makes me so happy because when I when I saw it, uh, I want to say three nights ago, as of recording, I was I was looking at it. and I'm like four thousand to go in just a couple days. Yeah. That's you know, it's not out of the question that's but at like at the $40 level the first tier of it that's that's a lot of books right there and it seems like it, it could be tough but still hoping for the best but yeah no that's just it, it's such excellent news and you know hopefully it i hopefully everything continues going up for them and mm-hmm. the entire first run of books that they does sells out without any problems and there's still a demand so then they can like they they said to if the demand is there and they sell out that first run nice and quick then then they can potentially bring the book into paperback to make it even more accessible and more affordable for people out there so the 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 better it goes just the the more claude coates's story will get out there and that's Mm -hmm. that's ultimately the end goal for it so very very happy for them and for folks in the Sacramento area, and even the San Francisco Bay area, I received a, um, a, a ping from a friend of mine, Leo, who's um, very involved in the Disney community and in a Disney and a fan club, our, the local chapter up here, that um, on November 10th at Stage 9 in Old Sacramento, I believe Dave Bossert is going to be making an appearance to talk about, I think it's Kim Weber his Ken Weber book and his Oswald book. So uh, so I'll let you know more information as I receive it. It is going to be a benefit that Disney and a fan club up here, they do a benefit for libraries, mm. um, donating books to libraries. That's their annual charity event that they do. And so I believe it's going to benefit that. So I will keep you updated. That's but, awesome. Um, yeah, so I have to reach out to Dave and say because normally f- at stage nine they don't uh, they don't have their um, presenters autograph anything you haven't you haven't purchased that day from stage nine. And my problem is I've purchased everything Dave has ever written. So I've got to write Dave and say, can we meet up before or after this event so I can get all my books <laughs> yeah. autographed by you? So, I'm sure he'd be more than happy to. I'm, I'm sure he would. But anyway, so I know uh, I want to thank all of you out there that I know a lot of our listeners said they pledged um, to, for this book. So it'll be um, fun and and um, look forward to reading it. So anyway, well, oh, and oh, there was something else I was going to bring up. I can't remember what it was. Oh, well, that's right. It might have been that. Yeah. So, if I'll it's a. Oh, oh, OK. What? You thought it, of it? was. <laughs> yes. Alistair Cook. That's who we were trying to remember (laughs) on the last episode. The minute we, you and I signed off for, from recording, I remembered it. And then listener Mike uh, sent me an email saying, and it was exactly what I had said. I was shouting at the 
with the iPod that <laughs> was Alistair Cook and all that. So that's who it was. So we were. Tr- I was trying yeah. to remember. So anyway, so always on that happens. note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always happens like that. As soon as you finish, it's yeah. that's when it comes to you. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, we're continuing um, uh, part two of our look at the September 2nd, 2019 Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault broadcast. Uh, this is their last series of films for 2019. And as we mentioned last week, due to the D23 Expo and other commitments, we weren't able to talk about them before their broadcast. But because I know, we know all of you are such fans of these films, and there are some really good ones in here, uh, we Craig and I decided we'd still talk about them even afterwards. So in our previous episodes, we discussed the first five offerings of the evening. And this week, we're going to go through the remaining ones. And most are snow-themed, snow sports-themed, with one added in, apparently, just for our viewing enjoyment. Craig, did you want to run through the lineup of the ones we're going to talk about this evening? Absolutely. So uh, at 2.45 a.m., that's when it showed, uh, we have our, our first short of this section that we're talking about that's the art of skiing from 1941 one of the uh one of the most shown and best of the goofy cartoons and then that was followed up with uh, another another movie that loosely so doesn't but does kind of fit in in a way uh fits into that short and that's snowball express from 1972 that was at 255 a.m then at 4.45 a.m., we have another short, uh, the, the Hockey Champ. And uh, beyond that, then it was uh, it ended off the night at... Sorry, I misplaced the time there. It ended off the night then with The Misadventures of Merlin Jones from 1964. And that was at 5.15 a.m. So... Uh, a very uh, a very interesting end to the night for sure, but uh, two amazing shorts in there, and then two uh, yes. zany movies. <laughs> yeah, very zany. Yeah, that probably is what connects those two together. <laughs> yeah, well, the best theme so, well, ever: zaniness. Yeah, yes. Well, well, the artist skiing is a goofy cartoon made by Walt Disney Productions in 1941, as you mentioned, and it has historical significance as the first cartoon to use the now famous Goofy Holler. And it's the only sound Goofy utters in the short because the voice of Goofy, Pinto Kolvig, had left the Disney studio and took a job with the Max Fleischer studio. So this is the short that led to the, you know, the Goofy How-To series beginning and, you know, and it began with, um, you know, how to play baseball in 1942. It continued through how to hook up your home theater in 2007. I wish they would continue those, like, I don't know, how to, how to um, program your iPhone. I don't know, something. I mean, they could yeah. easily continue this series that's modern technology yeah i mean the really the only issue that they kind of run into is then they'd still have to they they'd have to go back and use the classic animated characters in order to do it i would not want to see it with with the new version of goofy no, uh doing no, those oh, but no. yeah when when they when they did the home theater system it seemed like that was going to be the first of a new 
a new revolution of these shorts mm-hmm. and that was an awesome awesome short like you know it, it was very well yeah. done and i could identify with it <laughs> so i think much. a lot of people could and <laughs> yeah. yeah it just like it felt it felt so fresh and it's it, it just worked so well that i really i was hoping for for more <laughs> down the road but you know, who I'll keep keep my fingers crossed that one day someone decides to revamp it again. So I know, uh, I know the goofy now in those Disney Channel shorts. I, I mean, I could see him like how to embalm your grandmother. I mean, he's just <laughs> creepy. You know. Well, we do but, need to yeah. learn how to do that one day. So yeah, we all need to know. Yeah, yeah when 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 the zombie apocalypse comes and Goofy will be right in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this this was distributed by RKO Radio Pictures Incorporated, and of course, the stars Goofy. The voice actors were John. John McLeish and Hans Schroll, and we'll talk a lot more about him. It was directed by Jack Kinney and produced by Walt Disney. It was animated by Chester Cobb, Rex Cox, Ed Forsher, Richard McDermott, Frank Ornatus, Frank Ureb, um, Oreb, I should say, Wolfgang Reitherman, Willie Reitherman, John Sibley, Louis Terry, and Gene Hazelton. The music was by Charles Wolcott. Now, in this short, Goofy goes to Sugar Bowl Ski Resort to learn how to ski. The narrator and the opening titles mention an alternate pronunciation of skiing as sheing, although the narrator pronounces it as skiing for the remainder of the short. And supposedly, that that's really how you pronounce skiing, is yeah. sheing. Yeah, and I... I I actually, I, I mean, in normal conversation, I just say skiing, but then... Yeah, I uh, would think so. But then when I'm trying to be, you know, Craig being a dumb, smug person, then I actually, <clears throat> I, I I resonate back to the short and I, I go around saying sheen. Let's go sheen today, shall we? So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I bet, I bet people love you. <laughs> Everyone, um, everyone. Do you, do you have your little finger out and you? Oh yeah, I'm I'm sipping on yeah. nice a nice tea and oh no 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 it's a two, cognac uh, yeah a, a cognac in a and mixed with tea and you know it's on uh-huh. with my uh, my UGG boots my male UGG boots and <laughs> I'm, I'm the fanciest of fancies. It sounds like it, quite the swell. Um, so the cartoon opens with a panoramic panoramic sweep of snow-covered mountains, eventually focusing on a rustic ski lodge, within which Goofy is is waking up to get ready for a day on the slopes. Now, a sign identifies a location as the Sugar Bowl Lodge. And that identification lasted just for a few seconds, but it is a reminder of one of Walt's connections to Northern California. And I talked at length about this during my presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum about Walt's connections in Northern California. So, in the late, so set a buckle in, kids, because you're going to hear a part of it right now. In the late 1930s, Walt Disney met Austrian skiing champion Hans Schroll when he was on vacation at Yosemite's Badger Pass. And Schroll was the head of the Yosemite Ski School, and they became good friends. In 1938, Schroll and his business partners purchased land in the eastern Sierra Nevadas near Donner's Summit and the small town of Truckee with plans to build a ski resort. Schroll had sought financial assistance from Disney in purchasing the land because funds from his native Austria had been appropriated in the spring of that year when Hitler annexed that country. 
Walt was traveling and didn't receive Schroll's message in time, so Schroll had to find out, um, you know, had to find other investors to help purchase the land. One year later, when Schroll was seeking additional investments to build the resort, he again approached Walt and Walt wrote a check for $2,500 and became one of the initial stockholders of the new Sugar Bowl Resort. So to honor Walt's support and partnership, Schroll changed the name of Hemlock Peak to Mount Disney. And it's still named Mount Disney today. The first chairlift in California was built upon Mount Disney and is featured in The Art of Skiing. That's That's the chairlift that Goofy goes up. And he has a bit of a time. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> um, Goofy will be forever tied to Sugar Bowl Ski Resort because it was Hans Schroll who created the famous Goofy Holler. An accomplished yodeler, Schroll was recruited by Walt to record material for the cartoon, including Goofy's hilarious holler. Uh, Robert Cotts, Sugar Bowl's chief executive began skiing at Sugar Bowl in the 1970s and he would sit with Schroll and listen to his stories and this is what he said about recording the Goofy Holler. Disney and Hans got the chatting about Austria and yodeling, which Disney liked. So Hans yodeled for him. Disney was greatly impressed and called in his sound guys to record Hans. That's what ended up in the Disney cartoons. And Hans always said, you know what? I was never paid a dime for that. <laughs> so, so on December 19th, 1941, a presentation of the art of skiing was held at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco as part of the California Ski Association's first annual skiers ball. Walton Lillian attended the event and introduced the cartoon. One newspaper account described the showing as the film's world premiere, but it had already been released to theaters on November 12th, 1941. Eventually, Walt gave up skiing, but he remained a part of the Sugar Bowl Ski Resort. He sponsored events such as the Disney Junior Challenge Trophy and the Sugar Bowl Perpetual Goofy Races for Children, and the legacy of Walt's involvement with the resort is still evident. Besides Mount Disney, there are ski runs named the Disney Nose, the Disney Meadow, the Disney Return, and the Donald Duck. A modernized lift replaced the original Disney chair and is now called the Disney Express. So there's yeah. a lot of history here with that one little short. Oh, a ton of history there. So, and it, it, that's what's awesome that it's like it's still ingrained in it today. So that's something that could have easily changed over time. But I mean, years and years and years later, just just really awesome. So yeah, uh, and you know it, it it deserves it too. It's it's one of my favorite shorts, uh, it just overall. So especially it's my it's my favorite goofy how to short uh, above and beyond. So I mm-hmm. my my family had a, a condo at a ski resort for for many years. My parents currently live on a ski resort. So it's it's one of those things that uh, you know for me snowboarding, but just skiing in general is 
has been ingrained in my family so much that it's just I, I connect with the short on a on a complete other level. So it's it's one that I highly recommend seeking out and you can find great versions of it on YouTube if you missed it during Treasures mm-hmm. from the Disney Vault and it's it's everywhere. So it's yeah it's shown quite a bit. Uh, for yeah, good reasons. It's a, it's a good it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I agree. Well, if Goofy continued with the art of skiing, we probably would have seen him skiing down the slopes of Silver Hill, Colorado, in our next film, The Snowball Express. The film is based on Frankie and John O'Rear's 1967 novel, Chateau Bon Vivant. Snowball Express was released on December 22, 1972. So, upon arriving at his accounting firm's office in New York City, Johnny Baxter, played by Dean Jones, receives both bad news and good news from a probate lawyer, who is David White. The bad news is that his great-uncle, Jacob Barnsworth, has passed away. The good news is that Baxter has inherited Barnsworth. Grand Imperial Hotel in Silver Hill, Colorado, an operation that produces $14,000 a month in spite of a small occupancy rate. He happily quits his boring job in grand fashion. His family, who consists of Sue, his wife, played by Nancy Olson, a daughter, Chris, played by Kathleen Cody, and a son, Richard, who's Johnny Whitaker. We all remember him from um, Family Affair and Tom Sawyer and, and things, films like that. He was all over the place back in the 70s and the 60s. Um, they are not pleased to hear that they will be moving to a town they never heard of and helping to run a hotel, which none of them have the faintest idea how to do. But they follow along. Unfortunately for the family, the hotel is a ramshackle mess. And although an elderly squatter named Jesse McCord, who's played by Harry Morgan, he'd go on, we'd know, we'd know him as um, Colonel Potter and M.A.S.H., years later, and an enthusiastic young man, Wally Perkins, played by Michael McGreevy, who is a sort of a staple in uh, Disney films at this era, helped transform the property into a ski lodge. But the prospects remain bleak. Compounding the troubles, a local banker, Martin Ridgway, played by Keenan Wynn, who basically was a Disney villain in a lot of the films in the 70s. He is suspiciously intent on acquiring the hotel and is Baxter trapped through um, a loan with the intent of gaining the property from Baxter. The restored hotel opens a little fanfare, receiving few customers for several days when Wally dynamites a tree stump from the ground and the explosion sets off an avalanche, blocking a passing train carrying several hundred skiers. The Baxters quickly shuttle the skiers to their resort. All goes well until Wally commences ski training classes. Having never taught skiing before, Wally loses his balance and skis down a steep mountain. He makes Goofy look, um, you know, like a, an Olympic skier. <laughs> uh, you know, dangling over a ledge while clinging to a pine tree. Using the donkey engine and rope to lower Baxter down the mountain to rescue Wally, Jesse accidentally jostles a loose piece of lit firewood onto one of the ropes, anchoring the engine in place. Baxter rescues Wally, who suffers a broken arm. The burning rope 
brakes, setting the donkey engine free. It slides down the mountain with Baxter in tow, still roped to the machine after having rescued Wally. Of course, the engine plows through the hotel. All the guests check out, leaving the Baxters out of money once again. Baxter sheepishly goes back to Ridgeway, asking for an extension on his loan, which Ridgeway flatly refuses. Baxter notices a sign for the Silver Hills snowmobile race with $5,000 as the prize, a prize that has been won by Ridgeway for the last several runs of the race. Though Baxter, of course, has never used a snowmobile, he assumes Wally um, can drive his slapdash snowmobile. Unfortunately, Wally's broken arm from his skiing accident prevents him from being in the race. Baxter decides to drive the snowmobile himself with Jesse as his partner because you have to have two people on each snowmobile. Sue, furious that he would risk his own safety and health and certain that the lodge has become an obsession that has eclipsed his duties to his family, threatens to leave. On the day of the race, Jesse has second thoughts about partaking in the race aboard Wally's decrepit snowmobile, dubbed the Mighty Mongrel. After a rocky start, Baxter and McCord actually end up passing much of the pack. But a series of unfortunate turns and one unexpected shortcut ends up breaking one of the snowmobile's skis. Heading into town, both in the lead and under full power due to a broken throttle, Baxter plows into a snowbank, breaking the other ski. Ridgeway makes the same mistake, and they end up on the final stretch only seconds apart. Though they come close... Baxter and McCord narrowly miss the finish line. Ridgeway wins first place, and Baxter ends up riding the snowmobile for hours as it will not shut off nor stop. As he returns to town well after dark, his snowmobile towed by a horse, he finds his wife Sue waiting for him. The next day, Ridgeway brings the deed transfer papers to the lodge for Baxter to sign. An impassioned plea by Baxter for an extension is again denied. And when Baxter presses the issue, Ridgeway threatens to begin the foreclosure process, but offers to buy the resort from Baxter for practically nothing. Ridgeway's secretary, Miss Wigington, who's played by Mary Wicks, happens to be present during this exchange and tells everyone the truth. The property includes several hundred acres of pine timberland, originally donated to the local Indian tribes by Barnesworth for as long as the tribe inhabited the land. As the tribe has moved away or died out, the land reverts to the estate. Ridgeway wants to buy the resort in order to log the highly valuable timber located on the property. Jesse adds that the land the town was built on was granted by Jacob Farnsworth on the condition that several buildings be erected, including two hospitals, one an animal hospital, and a library. Baxter's son, Richard, who's Johnny Whitaker, notes that he has not seen a library and, in genuine confusion, asks why the land has not reverted to Baxter. Wigington realizes that he is absolutely right and that Silver Hill is in violation of the grant, meaning that the entire town is built on land now owned by Baxter, including Ridgeway's bank. Ridgeway, now finding himself at a disadvantage, is pressed by Baxter for an extension on the loan, which is quickly granted. 
Baxter pushes his advantage, and Ridgway quickly agrees to loan Baxter the money necessary to not only repair, but greatly expand the resort. Uh, so then they all go off skiing on the slopes happy, happily ever after. Mm-hmm. So this is another one directed by Norman Tokar. It was produced by Ron Miller and Tom Leach. Um, there was a cast of supporting stars well known to movie and television audiences of the time, you know, including David White. I think he was on Bewitched. Um, and Dick Van Patten is in it. Um, the Snowball Express was filmed on location in the Colorado Rockies. A city ordinance banning snowmobiles on the main street of Crested Butte had to be temporarily suspended so the Disney crews could film the snowmobile race sequence. Now, the 1970s are generally not considered great years for the Walt Disney Studio, and the films they released during this time were not critically acclaimed pictures, but they provided great family entertainment, which many other studios were beginning to abandon in favor of more adult-themed or socially relevant films. In the New York Times, Howard Thompson gave Snowball Express a positive review, deeming the effort quality family entertainment. And Thompson said, What could be more square or welcome at the moment than a pleasant Disney movie? The old-fashioned family kind. Snowball Express fills the bill very nicely. What it lacks in wit, it has in wholesome hearty chuckles. Add to this some nice snowy backgrounds and slope activity in the Colorado ski country. Gene Siskel gave the film two and a half stars out of four and noted, Youngsters probably will be bored with a plot that ultimately hinges on a legal technicality involving the probate of a will. But they should enjoy the slapstick, the trick skiing sequences, and the family St. Bernard that detests cold weather. Frederick Milston of the Los Angeles Times wrote, Ironically titled Snowball is a rather slow-paced farce which begins promisingly and then diminishes in size and effects. Its segments are rather jerkily and sloppily tacked together and its improbabilities and illogic soon overshadow its wit. And finally, Margaret Ford of the Monthly Film Bulletin wrote that Dean Jones and a strong supporting cast do their best with the rather flat characters and a total result is that old American favorite, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And Well, you know what? I like peanut butter and jelly and I, um, I enjoyed this film. It was and- just old-fashioned goofiness you know it it was it was better than i expected uh because i did i I looked at the reviews and stuff before i watched it just to to give me an idea of it and i was like oh this is going to be boring and i i really actually wasn't looking forward to it that much but ultimately you know it's the Again, the the Colorado loving side of me kind of won over, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of the imagery and, and stuff, and the fact that it takes place there, and the 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 snow and just everything like that came together for me, and it made it infinitely more enjoyable. And it, it still had its slow moments, but uh, it, it I mean, it's kind of like we talk about with anything from these Disney movies around this time. It's they're they're post Walt and the 
the tone wasn't always on point and and the the pacing wasn't always on point and that's a, that's not just exclusive to these disney movies of the the 70s early and mid 70s i mean it's walt wasn't perfect when it came to making movies either so uh it's it's just if you've watched a lot of the other stuff that we've talked about from the 70s expect more of the same but uh, i there's still a lot of enjoyment to to find throughout this movie and and you know the the actors think i'll do they all do their their job well and always always a pleasure watching dean jones and mm-hmm. yeah I, I don't don't really have anything bad to say about it i, I would give it a shot so if if you didn't yeah. already watch it yeah definitely yeah check it out it's a lot of fun now we switch from skiing to hockey with the 1939 Donald Duck cartoon short, The Hockey Champ. This was directed by Jack King, produced by Walt Disney, music by Paul J. Smith and Charles Wolcott. The animation is by Paul Allen, Johnny Cannon, and Jim Carmichael. And this short opens with Donald attempting to imitate skating legend and Olympian Sonia Henney. He even does his feathers up into Henney's signature hairdo and spends the first couple of minutes circling around the frozen pond, making spectacular leaps and twirls in his skates. I was really impressed with Donald's um, skating prowess in this. Um, Huey, Dewey, and Louie show up and they try to play hockey. Donald reveals that he was the hockey champion of Duck Swamp. Even pulls out his uh, retractable uh, 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 trophy. Um, Donald challenges the boys to do a hockey match. At first, things go well for Donald as he repeats his Sonia Henney performance, only this time with a stick in the puck. As in every Donald short, though, his pride and temper gets him in trouble, combined with his nephew's mischievousness. So this this was just a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. No, this... I, I, it absolutely is. It's another one of my favorite shorts. So uh, yeah. because, I mean, just sticking with the subject, it's uh, it's another one that hits one of my favorite favorite topics of all time. In this case, that's of course uh, a hockey. So huge hockey fanatic, and this is one that uh, you know they they always played it growing up right around uh, right around the Christmas season because they just took the entire winter approach with it and. Said, so, well, snow and ice and that inside, so we'll play it right around that time period. And but you know, it's it, that's also all my memories almost seem like they they circulate around a lot of that time of year. So it's just something I was used to watching all the time. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the animation is good in this. So this is one of Donald and his nephews' better. Yeah, uh, better outings here oh exactly so. and i i love huey dewey and louie too so mm-hmm. always i do too always nice seeing them represented it just yeah. i you know it's i know it didn't match with the <clears> themes <throat> but being right before uh right be showing in september right before halloween it would have been nice to have you know trick-or-treat being shown if they yeah. could have found a way to stick that in but hey that's it's not like they used it for the the fireworks show here in Walt Disney World for the Halloween party this year. So, <laughs> why why resurrect it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be on some special somewhere. Yes. 
Well, we round out this year's Treasures from the Disney Vault with the 1964 family teenage comedy, The Misadventures of Merlin Jones. Now, this teenage comedy was originally made as a two-part episode for Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color television show, but it turned out so well that Walt decided it deserved a theatrical release, and it was so popular that it led to a sequel, The Monkey's Uncle. And you can tell, since the first and second segments of the film really have little to do with each other. Um, Midvale College student Merlin Jones, played by Tommy Kirk, who is always involved with mind experiments, designs a helmet that connects to an electroencephalographic tape. He said it so much better. I said it more like Annette Funicello did. (laughs) (laughs) That records mental activity. He is brought before Judge Holmby, played by Leon Ames, a, a very well-known character actor at the time. I remember seeing him a lot on um, the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, for wearing the uh, anyway, for, he's brought anyway he's brought before the judge for wearing the helmet whilst driving, and his license is suspended. Merlin returns to the lab and discovers accidentally that his new invention enables him to read minds. Judge Holmby visits the diner where Merlin works part time. And Merlin, through his newly found powers, learns that the judge is planning a crime. After informing the police, he is disregarded as a crackpot. So Merlin and Jennifer, who's played by Annette Funicello, his girlfriend, break into Judge Holmby's house looking for something to prove Holmby's criminal intent. But they are arrested by the police. Holmby then confesses that he is the crime book author Lex Fortis and asks that his identity be kept confidential. So in the second half of the film, uh, Merlin's experiment this time involves hypnotism. And after hypnotizing Stanley, who's Midvale's lab chimp, into standing up for himself against Norman, um, Norm Grabowski, he's the the bully student in charge of caring for Stanley, uh, Merlin gets into a fight with Norman and is brought before Judge Holmby again. That's the only connecting thread in this. Intrigued by Merlin's experiments, the judge asks for Merlin's help in constructing a mystery plot for his next book. Working on the premise that no honest person can be made to do anything they wouldn't do otherwise, especially commit a crime. Merlin hypnotizes Holmby and instructs him to kidnap Stanley. Shocked when the judge actually commits the crime, Merlin and Jennifer return the chimp, but are charged for the theft themselves. The judge sentences Merlin to jail, completely unaware of his own role in the crime. Livid at the injustice, Jennifer persuades Holmby of his own guilt, and the good judge admits that there might be a little dishonesty in everybody. Now, the film is based on an original idea by Disney storyman and producer Bill Walsh, whose credits were many, including The Absent-Minded Professor. The screenplay was written by Alfred and Helen Levitt under the names Tom and Helen August due to the fact that they had been blacklisted in Hollywood after being suspected um, of being communists. 
Director Robert Stevenson already made a name for himself with films like Old Yeller and the Absent-Minded Professor, directed this film right before moving on to Mary Poppins. Tommy Kirk and Annette Funicello were cast opposite each other, having already performed together in The Shaggy Dog and two television movies, The Horse Masters and Escapade in Florence. This was originally meant to be the last Disney film for both. Annette had become famous for her beach movies and had moved on with Walt's permission. Tommy Kirk's personal life had become public and got to the point where the Walt Disney Studio could no longer remain associated with him. Um, When the film became a success, they were brought back for the sequel, but without contracts for future films. The animated credits were are created by Exitensio and Bill Justice, and the Sherman Brothers wrote the title song for the film, which was a big hit for Annette Funicello, who sang the title song. Filming took place in January 1963, and it is clear the film was made on a television budget and was entirely filmed indoors and on the Walt Disney Studio back lot. Studio buildings served as Midvale College exteriors. There is a street scene where you can get a quick glimpse of a studio building in the background. Um, The only elaborate prop in the film is the electronic headgear worn by Merlin Jones. Uh, the film was released on February 11, 1964. To everyone's surprise, including Walt Disney Productions, the film grossed $4 million. Nobody knows what a picture will do, said E. Carton Walker, or Card Walker, Disney's vice president in charge of advertising. Merlin Jones grossed $4 million and surprised everybody. So what did, what did you think of Merlin Jones, Craig? It- I mean, it's a goofy movie, but it was impossible to not like. So this just, it's actually one that I didn't see before, but this felt just classic Disney. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I I just absolutely love Annette Funicello. She is, I I didn't, I I don't want to sound sacrilege as a Disney fan or anything, but I didn't always necessarily care for her. But in the past couple of years, I'm, I think I'm finally starting to see that that side of her that everyone loved and and really see what what made her stand out so much and you know this it's just it's a goofy movie but it is fun it it's really fun it is and i and i i also like i also appreciate Annette's acting and and, and the charm and charisma that just you know entranced everybody yeah. also i think tommy kirk does a very good job he's a very good actor and you know it's unfortunate that um sort of his some of his demons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. took over and 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 other things but um that that sort of brought down his career but uh you know i've I always I I always enjoyed everything that he was in as well. Yeah, and I I'll be honest. I I know you, I know you wrote about the the movie kind of having more of a, a television feel to it because of its history and all that. I maybe I was just too entranced with with the everything about it that it didn't really to me it didn't come across like 
super clear that that was that was the case with it and and its budget and stuff but i you know it's it, one of the rare times i would say with the treasures from the disney vault where they save a movie for last that is one that like I, I would have liked to have seen it earlier in the night. Like it would have been one for me that if that would have been like a ten o'clock movie, I would I know I would have been up through the entire thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's fun. Hopefully, yeah. we'll see. Um, they'll they'll show the monkey's uncle at some point too. The sequel, yeah, or we'll see it on Disney Plus. Disney so Plus, yeah. the and you know since not not to derail this, but since we are at the end of the night for there, I. I some of the lists have come out with what they're claiming will be the full list of Disney plus uh, movies and such. And there are definitely, definitely stuff that we have seen on treasures from the Disney vault popping up on there. There's, there's a lot that I noticed isn't on there. So like I got so excited when I got to the, the Johnny section and first I saw Johnny tsunami, which of course is right up my alley as a half surfer half snowboard movie and then then the sequel to it's on there and i'm like well clearly if they have these two johnny movies they're gonna have johnny tremaine and that was not the case but uh it's you never know what's gonna pop up in the future hopefully they they really look at the the analytics and get out there and start when when you go to bed at night and you turn off your TV before you do so. Uh, go on your Apple TV and just start playing all the old movies. So then someone is <laughs> someone's writing down like, okay, this all this classic Disney stuff is what's getting the views. We need to keep that coming. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. And um, well, that's a wrap for this year's Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault. But now it's time to see if there are any references to films or sheing. This week in Disney history. Okay, Craig. So there actually are. There are not maybe to Sheen. But, um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. But there definitely is for... Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of film references in here. Well, let's hope so, I do well. Let's see. Okay, so we're starting with September 29th. Actress Greer Garson is born in London, England on September 29th, 1904. One of MGM's major stars of the 1940s, she starred in one film for Walt Disney Productions. What is the name of the film? Ooh, the name <laughs> sounds very familiar, but I couldn't pick out the one film that she starred for. Well, we talked about it last week, The Happiest Millionaire. Oh, that's probably why it still sounds familiar in my mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she played the role of Mrs. Cordelia Biddle. Okay, okay, okay. In Walt yeah. Disney's 1967 live-action musical feature, The Happiest Millionaire. Uh, that was a tricky one there, so... Yeah, yeah, it was. Okay, September 30th. Pepsi-Cola's sponsorship of this Disneyland attraction ended on September 30th, 1982. They had sponsored this attraction since July 1955, but Pepsi's relationship with Disney had been damaged in 1971 when Coca-Cola signed on for co-sponsorship of other attractions. Eastman Kodak will take up the sponsorship of this attraction the following day. What is the name of the attraction? I have no idea whatsoever. It's in, it's, it's in Frontierland. That helps. Uh, okay, so it would have been around through 82 then. Um, 
Um, I'm I'm Welcome still Welcome everybody. Mighty glad to see you uh, here. Golden Horseshoe. See at the Golden Horseshoe. That's where you threw <laughs> me right. off because I uh-huh. I know I it, yes, it, it was an attraction of shorts, but since I've been going, I've only known the Golden Horseshoe as a place to get food at, not a I know not an attraction. Sad. So that that was a trick question. I'm not I'm mm. not appreciating these tricks you're pulling and, this week. And and I have a very well the the trick you just didn't remember what we talked about <laughs> last week, but um, but um, I um I I have a very broad uh, definition of attraction too. Yes. Yeah. All right. Okay, October 1st, the statue is unveiled at the Magic Kingdom on October 1st, 1999. Who does it honor? Uh, it, it, 1999, that would have been the um, that would have been the Roy statue in That's Town right. Square. That's right, Roy O. Disney, Walt's older brother. And it will be dedicated on October 25th. Yeah, that always blows me in mind, uh, blows my mind thinking that you know, it, it's such a beautiful statue. Like it, kind of like the partner statue. You think it's like, well, it's been here forever. It was here before Roy even died, and and they built the Magic Kingdom because it just looks like it fits in that well. But mm-hmm. it's not really that old. It does. I, it's too bad they. You know, I understand why it's not at Disneyland, but I wish they could have one at Disneyland. I mean, yeah, you know, it, it's at Burbank, and that makes sense. Yeah. But anyway. Right, October 2nd, a replica of this Disneyland attraction located in Duluth, Georgia, goes up for sale on eBay. What is the name of the attraction on which this replica is based? Oh, um... Jeez, you're throwing me for a loop on this one. I'm... I, I don't even have a guess. It's based on the Haunted Mansion. Theme Park hmm. Connection, specialist in buying and selling Disney memorabilia, offers the 10,000-square-foot home for $873,000. Although owner and designer Mark Hurt, a Disney contractor, put in some modern-day upgrades, such as more bathrooms and livable rooms, the rest of the mansion, built in 1996, is modeled after the popular Disneyland attraction. I guess that would make sense. Isn't like, it cool? Yeah, that is. I I, I had never I heard that, that before, but it, it, now that you explained it, uh, it, the answer seemed pretty uh, self-explanatory from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I remember when this happened, actually. So. Yeah, I just, I, I guess I missed it. So I was definitely, I mean, it's, I was, at this point in time, I was already working for the Diz, so I should have. I should have heard about this. <laughs> you know, yeah, if I had the money, this might have gotten me to move to Duluth, Georgia. Uh, so. You're better off where you are. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know Duluth, Georgia. Is that anywhere near some place? Yes, it's just it's. Uh, there's nothing. Uh, I don't want to offend our Duluth, Georgia listeners, so I'm just going to stop speaking now. If you live in Duluth, I'm sure you love it the same way that if you live anywhere that's not. Uh, I'm. I'm going to just stop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to insult what is it every near, listener. Though? What is it? Is it near Savannah? Is it near Atlanta? Is it near? Is it near? Sorry, you cut out there for a second. Oh, um, I, it's I was near, just wondering. It's near Atlanta. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's it's. 
I, it's a, I don't know if it would be considered a suburb because it's a little bit uh, further out north of Atlanta, but I'm not mm-hmm. – Kylie would know better whether or not it's considered a suburb, but I think it's, I think it's even further away from Atlanta than she was. So mm. and okay. that was – that's kind of far outside the city, but I, I am not sure how it goes. Okay. Interesting. Well, if I'm ever around there, I'm definitely looking this place up. Um, October 3rd, Walt Disney's second television series is broadcast for the first time on ABC on October 3rd, 1955. What is the name of this series? The You said the third time there? Sorry? Uh, it's the second television series. The second television. Sorry. Uh, and it's broadcast for the first time in 1955. That would have been um, Mickey Mouse Club. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And the Musketeers have already made their first television appearance on the ABC broadcast of Disneyland's opening in July 1955. And um, of course, today is Fun with Music Day. So uh, on on the day they first mm-hmm. broadcast, October fourth. The Magic Kingdom's Mission to Mars attraction, running since June 1975, closes in Tomorrowland on October 4th, 1993. What will replace it? Of course, the extraterrestrial alien encounter. That's right. And ultimately, with Stitch's Great Escape. Uh, We can just move past that. (laughs) You know, we just shut it down without telling anyone. So uh, we, we can move past it all together now and finally for october 5th what is shown for the last time when the main street cinema closes on october 5th 1992 what is shown for the last time um that it was um it was the it was the movie that focused on Walt Disney. I That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Walt I, Disney story. That's it. I knew it was yeah. straightforward like that, but yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember if it was that. I didn't I didn't want to embarrass myself. Yeah, the cinema will be refurbished and reopened as a merchandise location in nineteen ninety eight. It took them six years to reopen it. That's Not too long. Crazy. Not too long. So <laughs> one of one of their better turnarounds, I would say. I guess. <laughs> well, anyway, but, um, I, guess, I guess it took a lot to um, move in those counters. Yeah, I mean, it's like, well, where do you put the projector? Where do you, where do you uh, put counters? Where do you, mm-hmm. where do you put a cash register? Like, there are yeah. lots of questions. I'm sure there were. <laughs> <laughs> Still are. So, all right. Well, did okay this time. So. Yeah, and a lot okay. could have just a lot could have been solved if I would have just thought a little bit harder. But hey, <laughs> I'm giving myself a pat on the back, anyways. <laughs> good, good. Well, you know, it'll be interesting. Like we were talking earlier, it'll be interesting to see how many of the films that have been on, you know, Turner Classic Movies Treasures from the Disney Vault will make it to Disney Plus right away. And yeah. what the relationship will be between Turner Classic Movies and Disney Plus in the future. So yeah, no, it's because 
there's obviously a lot of questions too with with what we're going to see at, at, in Disney Plus in terms of like with editing and that's that's on everyone's mind to see how stuff is it's kind of torn apart on there one of one of Turner Classic Movies uh, one of the the things they stand behind with it is that they show their movies uncut and unedited and so like right there it's it you know they anything they deem to show during treasures from the disney vault it has to be unedited in order to to fit their their standards for mm-hmm. for that channel and with disney plus we know that's not going to be the case with all this stuff so just just right there it screams if if disney starts getting crazy with disney plus and saying we want to edit some stuff and and make it more family friendly for everyone then that's where you need something like tcm treasures from the disney vault to to continue showing stuff as as it was meant to be shown so yeah uh, it can't the relationship doesn't need to go away and like we we said on i think last show round or another one before at the end of the day they can just use it as one big promotion tool to get people to buy disney plus as long Mm -hmm. as they're featuring the stuff on disney plus that they're also showing on on treasures from the disney vault It, it can work together in harmony yeah, I agree. I, I and I certainly hope they do that. I like the commentary, yeah, of Leonard Maltin. Yeah, that, and so. that's that's something I'll miss with Disney Plus. That I, I I wish that could be an option that they could show movies and, and such with commentary and have behind the scenes stuff. But that's why that's why I make sure that I buy as much as I can on physical media to still support to support stuff like that, that that you don't get on these streaming services. So uh, just just keep that in mind, too, if you're subscribed to Disney Plus or plan on subscribing. Just because you do it doesn't mean you need to give up on physical media where you get mm-hmm. commentary and behind the scenes and, and all of that. That's, that's still it, – it's fascinating to watch, and it's literally documenting. Oh, absolutely. It makes our jobs easier sometimes when we're, <laughs> we're going back and we're able to watch – behind the scenes stuff of how the how these things were made instead of you know just hoping that someone wrote about it at one point in time so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that's why you bought those the, that maleficent blu-ray for the commentary oh, no i will be honest i bought that one thinking i was going to review it for the diz and i <laughs> i didn't even open it up for after a year I've- I didn't buy it. Um, I, I didn't bother. Yeah. Well, you know, so. now the, the hard part is just because I have that one in to to make it look good on my shelf. I have the the fear that I will have to one day buy buy the sequel no, as well too. Don't don't feed the beast. I, it, it hurts, <laughs> but I need perfection on my shelves. Well, then donate <laughs> donate the. the Blu-ray to your local library or a children's <laughs> shelter or something. <laughs> good, so you don't have that <laughs> nagging yeah, at you. Good, good suggestions there. <laughs> well, I'll be joining Dream Unlimited Travel's exclusive adventures by Disney London Paris Adventure over the next few weeks. So we'll be bringing you a few shows from deep within the bowels of the Diz Unplugged Vault. And when I come back, you can be sure I will share a big old trip report with you. And I'm excited because going uh, Disneyland Paris will complete an item in my bucket list. I would have visited all the Disney parks around the world. 
So, and I'm looking yeah. forward. If I, I know we have listeners in the United Kingdom, and I think we have a few. I know I have friends on Facebook in Paris or in mm-hmm. France. Mm-hmm. So if you all um, bump into me, <laughs> please be sure to say hello. Uh, that would that would be great. So, um, anyway, so looking forward to it. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, you're going to have a great time. And, and of course, you're going to love Disneyland Paris. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I've been reading all about it. Yeah. So. Just, um, enjoy every bit of it. And appreciate the Walt Disney Studios for for what it was. And know that the next time, hopefully, you'll be out there, it will be a complete different park. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, my friend um, David Yunker. You know, we had him on the show. Yeah, yeah the Art uh, of Theme Parks Design. Right. That's right. Yep. He, uh, yes, I'm meeting up with him and his wife um, whilst in London. And he had bought for me years ago this big old book about Disneyland Paris. So I think it's out of print now. And so he was always intending to bring it out to me on his next trip to California. Well, they've had a baby since then. So um, who's a little, just a few months old. So um, they're not coming out to California for a long time. <laughs> so he's bringing me this book. And he says, it's a bit bulky. And I said, well, you know, it makes sense you're bringing it to me, but how much does it weigh? <laughs> That's my big concern. Yeah, so. yeah it's, that, that is. So you gotta, you got to watch how much you're bringing back. <laughs> I know. I know. So I might have to ship popcorn buckets back like I did from China. <laughs> so. Well, from what I remember out there, there wasn't that much unique when it came to popcorn buckets. So I think oh, okay. I think you might get lucky on it. But I... I I do think that I saw too that they released um, right around when uh, when Phantom Manor reopened they released an awesome book about it so uh, oh, it's you okay. know I, I might be uh, I might be if you get there and you see it you, you let me know how much I owe you. <laughs> send it, send, how much? Send it, how much does it weigh, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> you you just make sure you slip it into to Pete's bag with a note that this is for Craig on the way home. So then, then it gets back to me faster. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm joking. I mean, I'm only half joking. <laughs> so. Okay, and um, before I depart, you may see me at the Walt Disney Family Museum on Friday, September 27th, or Saturday, September 28th, because I am uh, attending a couple of special events. On Friday, September 27th, in the evening, they're having a big old party for the Enchanted Tiki Room. So it's going to be Tiki Mania, I guess. And and they're going to have a presentation, I think, as well. And Saturday, September 28th, it's Conserving Walt's Legacy. I think it might be about the um, True Life Adventure series. I think. Yeah. I'm not 100% yeah. sure, though. So anyway, so if you are there, please be sure to say hello. All right. So for references for this episode, I use a couple of books, the Disney films by Leonard Maltin and Walt Disney in live action, the Disney Studios live action features of the 1950s and 60s by John G. West. A few websites I reference include the Disney films, the Disney wiki, the mouseforless.com. Silver Scene, a blog for classic film lovers, Turner Classic Movies, and D23.com. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? 
As always, you can find me on a bunch of shows that you'll find on the Disunplugged Podcast Network, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disneyunplugged.com, or check out the link um, that Craig always has in our show notes to those. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.